I'm John Geeter. You can probably tell by my accent I'm not from the States. Um, I, with my colleague, Professor Richard Vincent, are from an organization called PRIME, Partnerships in International Medical Education. And it's an enormous joy to be invited to be part of this uh, conference. And, and I've been overwhelmed, I must say, with the, uh, the enthusiasm and the sheer buzz of people who want to serve our Lord through healthcare. I think it's fantastic. Um, before I start, we, there are some handouts. Some of you have picked up handouts already. Otherwise, pick them up at the end. We've got some information about Prime, very basic, um, some of the stories. There's a disc there as well with some of our other core presentations. We, we, we teach around the world. I think we've actually done programs about 40 different countries. But we've got about 27 that we work regularly and with partners there. And um, these are some of the materials on the disc that we found most useful in communicating a, if you like, a Christian worldview of medicine without being too in your face for people. And so we found that it's acceptable to people of all faiths or none and brings the person of Jesus as the role model of healthcare into their understanding. And today we're going to look at one of the, one of the great attributes that should be there in, if you like, it's wrong to call it Christian healthcare because it's healthcare. Healthcare without compassion is healthcare minus. You know, we tend to say whole person care is healthcare plus. It's not. Everything else is healthcare minus. And so if you lose God and his values from healthcare, it ceases to be what God intended it to be. So we're going to look at the case for compassion. Is compassion just a nice thing, or is it something of importance? This is a picture. How many of you have been to Italy? Did any of you go to Siena? Siena. Did you go to the Ospitale di Santa Maria della Scala? Hmm? Yes. Did you see this picture? <laughs> it's worth going. It's a, great, it's a great place to visit. This is a picture painted in 1450 showing life in the hospital. There are 12 great panels of it. And this is a picture. The, the hospital was built in 1030 by the, by the cathedral to care for beggars, orphans and pilgrims. In other words, for the poor. And um, it started much as a hospice, but then as medical science came into Western Europe, it became a hospital of great renown, but it kept its Christian ethos. And, and here's this picture of a beggar who's been severely wounded, facing death, and um, the healthcare attendant attending him. And I ask the question, is this good healthcare or not? Who'd like to volunteer? Yes? How many think this is good? How many think it's not good? Why is it not good? Ah. But have you noticed hemostasis has occurred? There is no blood on the cushion. I thought that. I thought, why don't they get on with that wound? No, no, this is an old wound. And probably the worst thing you could do is to rush in and, and, and suture it. Or, you know, I think... It's a lesson I had to learn when I worked as a missionary in the Himalayas. You know, you get wounds ten days old. 
and all my accident emergency, oh, let's stitch it up straight away. And if you do that, sometimes it's not good. So, um, no. This, this is, I mean, what do you see on the, on the attendant's face? Hmm? Compassion. Sheer compassion. He's, he's a traumatized beggar. The, the biggest danger here is to his spirit. The post-traumatic stress disorder has come face to face with death. And here is this man ministering in compassion. I say to some people, why is he washing the feet? If I ask you, why is he washing the feet? Because hmm? they smell? Because he's saying, I am here as your servant, as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, so we do. I, I just think this exemplifies um, something. I mean, it's not medical science. I'd rather be treated when I had cancer in a hospital in, in, in UK in the 21st century than in 1450 in Siena. But nevertheless, I think this is something which easily gets lost from our health care, this compassion. And the great thing is the surgeon is there. You can see him with his sponge and his forceps. But he is waiting until the patient has been reassured and comforted. In UK, in 2006, the Royal College of Physicians, that's our top body of physicians, published this pamphlet. And it um, was approved by all the other Royal Colleges and the General Medical Council and the British Medical Association and patients' groups. And it laid down, really, the, the, the ethics that doctors in the 21st century should have. And it, it said, medicine is a vocation in which a doctor's knowledge, clinical skills and judgment are put in the service of protecting and restoring human well-being. I think that's a great statement. And they put down six, six professional values. This is not, not professional values. And... There were these, in this order. Integrity, compassion, altruism, continuing improvement, excellence, and working in partnership with a wider team. And we ask groups around the world, well, excellence, that's, it's, it's, it's a word with many meanings, but if you take that as excellent clinical care, we do get some training in that and some examination. But do we have an examination in altruism to qualify? In compassion? In integrity? And yet here, the UK top bodies have all agreed this. And I think you'd find the same with American uh, professional bodies. They put these values there. But somewhere they slip and it says these values underpin the science and practice of medicine and form the basis for a moral contract between the medical profession and society. Compassion. How many are, I mean, I'm not terribly familiar with the States. I've worked overseas with some very compassionate American doctors. But the general view in America of their doctors is that they are compassionate. Did you have compassionate teachers in your medical schools? Yeah. Some. Some, yes. I mean, yeah. But, you know, there's certainly in some of the countries we work in, it's a rare commodity. In UK, America, there has been a 
shift in medical education to bring in humanity greater into the syllabus. But it's not universal. And many of you will work overseas in places where it is far from universal. So if, what, what happens? Here we have the would-be doctor. Many of you here, when I grow up, <laughs> I think it's 26, isn't it, according to the talk. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to help people, heal people, relieve suffering. Is that why you went into medicine? Yes? Or because you're good at science and it pays a big salary? <laughs> a bit of both, maybe. A bit of both. There's nothing wrong with being a bit of both. And to come from Siena in 1450 to the India-Pakistan border in the 21st century, we introduce you here to Dr. Mary from the Emanuel Hospital Association, which is one of the groups that Prime works with in developing family medicine residences. And um, she is here with that same expression of compassion, Yes? Yes? I mean, yeah. And, you know, many people, we show this and say, oh, well, it's all right when you've got all the time in the world, but we're busy. Here she was part of a Christian relief team to the Pakistan earthquake. Probably seeing 100 patients that day. And yet, compassion, real care, actually bridges that gulf within seconds. And people say, whole person medicine, oh, it takes a long time. It doesn't. Whole person medicine takes a flash of a moment as you make that connection, that deep spiritual connection with your patients. And once you've got that, the consultation proceeds. They tell you what's the matter. They believe what you say. And it just works. Sometimes it means that you have to spend longer because you unearth all sorts of problems. Other times it shortens the consultation. So, compassion. What about this one? This, this is a painting by an American artist, Rob, Robert Pope, who was treated in one of your top cancer hospitals. And he spent the last two months of his life receiving treatment. And he painted pictures of life in the hospital. And this one he entitled The Ward Round. What, what do you see there? Compassion? No. The doctor's up there, isn't he? Above the bed. Looking down. Clinical specimen. Is that right? Now, I think he probably is an artist. He's allowed to exaggerate. This was his emotion as he saw it. And I'm sure these guys are really nice. <laughs> Seriously, you know, if you have coffee with them, they'll be great. No, no, but it's, 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 it's learning a persona as a doctor which does not portray those cardinal values. You know, I can't do anything more for you. Your cancer's beyond that. Um, you know... You're not my concern anymore. He did also paint some brilliant pictures of some of the good care he saw there, particularly from nurses and people walking with the patient, supporting them. When I was in hospital with, with cancer, I, I experienced 
terrible care in one respect, in that I was in the x-ray department. It was Easter Sunday, nobody was there. My drip ran through, and I was alone for an hour and a half, and I got quite frightened, <laughs> as you can imagine, just two days post-op, and they'd said I thought I had a pomniembrilus. And, and somebody in a white coat came, and I called out to them, and they just made a dismissive gesture. You're not my responsibility. And then two days later, a staff nurse going off duty put on her, she changed her clothes and put on her going home clothes and came back and sat on my bed because I'd learned I'd lost my spleen and they'd recommended because of the infection risk that I should no longer continue my work as a family doctor because dealing with too many cases of pneumococcal infection. And it was a big blow. bad enough to have cancer, let alone have that. And she came and sat on my bed for half an hour and just listened to me sob my heart out. And I said, shouldn't you be going home? She said, no, no, no. She said, it's only choir practice tonight. <laughs> yeah. That's priorities. And she, she was like an angel. And it makes such a difference. So why are we... Oh, no, sorry, I've got one more of my section. Even our nurses, though, in UK, this, this was a headline of the Times newspaper. New nurses lack caring skills. Do you know why that is? Are people less caring in themselves than they used to be? Or is it to do with the training? They've changed our nursing training from being in the hospital on the wards to being a Bachelor of Science degree. And they're not trained to care. Many hospitals are now taking that back and training their nurses themselves, offering their own degrees for in-service training because it only works if you develop your medical nursing skills in contact, experiential learning with role models. So the question is why? Why, why is there this defect between the ideal and what so often we experience? Have any of you been in hospital as a patient? Wow. <laughs> You're a healthy lot. <laughs> Mind you, when I was the age of most of you here, I, I would have said that. And now my hospital notes are about like that. God, God has seen me through. But um, why? Why? Richard. Let me say hello too. It's really great to be here with you uh, and... Uh, if you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm not quite sure what else to do with my voice. <laughs> why? It's, why aren't we? It's interesting. Uh, we, there are studies which show where medical students come to start their course. Many of them have a really high ideal about looking after people and being compassionate. And what happens as the years go by, it gets squashed and it gets lost. And that's a terrible thing, isn't it? If we go back to that wonderful picture that we saw before, it's not very far off what we have in our hospital, but we are a long way away from here. The caring is in the context, of course, that uh, there isn't much real medical science to go around at that time, certainly as we know. And it goes with a view of the person there uh, which comes from a Christian viewpoint, a Christian worldview of what people are like made in God's image. And you can see other people around 
all focused on this one sufferer. And I sometimes find it helpful to think about the, the distribution of the parts of this, if you will, into body, mind and spirit, and also the social relationships that we have. We, we don't exist just as ourselves, we exist in the, concept, in the context of relationships. Uh, and these are all very much tied up with how we are. Now, occasionally I can walk over to somebody like this and <coughs> stand on his foot. Uh, sorry, I actually missed it. Um, I usually have to supply the owl in case I do miss. Um, the, now, if I did that for real, it wouldn't just be the foot that hurt. There'd be a, what? There'd be a mental reaction. Uh, there would be, maybe there would be a spiritual reaction. Hey, I'm a brother in Christ. What are you doing? What's this? Well, how does the faith work out in this situation? What are you doing? Uh, and there's a social reaction. It changes the relationship between us. And I might get, you know, a clop around the chin. So almost everything, almost all illnesses, will impinge on most of those bits, whether they seem mostly to be focused in one or the other. In fact, sometimes it's difficult to know really where the main focus is of an illness, isn't it? Is the chest pain only coronary artery disease, or actually is there a whole bunch of things around that, working with that coronary atheroma to bring on the symptoms at that moment, for the plaque to rupture at that moment? Why then did all this separation anyway happen? Let's go back to that question. And the Enlightenment, the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, which uh, we experienced has a lot to do with it uh, in the way that we think uh, about things. The divide uh, that went like this. The divide where suddenly as science erupted, we came to use telescopes, we came to use machinery and understanding, and we found truths about the physical world which seemed exciting in themselves and which also seemed to lead to useful things to do about our world, including healthcare. And at the same time, the mindsets commonly di also divided to the other side. So things that were to do with the arts, things that were to do with the softer things you can't measure. This was a great era of measurement. We could suddenly measure things and do things with maths about them. Here, well, it wasn't so exact. And gradually there was an erosion of the idea that you could rely on any of this but this was truth. You could measure it. You could use it. It was valuable. You could create iPads. Um, I don't think they thought of those at the time, but, you know, that was the start of it. And that's what's led through. So here, the material, the real world, that's what's the reality. Because we can do so much for people who are ill with this real world, and we can. But we don't need to take much notice of this, or if we do, let it rest with the individual. If the individual wants a faith, if the individual wants a spiritual meaning, well, fine. But as long as it doesn't get in the way of the proper truth. That's the sort of pattern of thinking. And what I'd suggest is, it's still very much buried in our culture. Do you agree? Do you see that? We in the UK have become intensely materialistic. 
and tend to look to all the material things, if you will, as our salvation. Uh, even if we don't, even if we don't have that many vicious uh, uh, proclamating atheists, nevertheless the feeling is this really doesn't count at the ordinary conversational level. Deep inside, I think people are very different. But that's how our society plays out, and that's the problem, because all those things to do with persons are being watered down by the focus on the material. And that's what's happened in medical schools. Uh, throughout uh, most of my life as, uh, as a doctor, the emphasis on what we do in training our doctors and in playing out medicine until relatively recently uh, has made the proportion of the somatic absolutely huge. That's, that's where the science is. That's where medicine is. Uh, if you mention psychological stuff, you get down-cornered mouths and do we have to go to that session? Uh, we don't really mention spiritual stuff at all. And social things are what you do outside hospital, and that's, well, you know, that's out there. And hasn't maybe so much to do at all with what we're dealing with in the hospital patient. We do the anatomy, we dissect, we look at the structure, we take the skin off, we look at the relationships, the functionality, etc., etc. And certainly for very many years, our training has started with that for years, to focus on the dead mechanics, if you will, uh, of inside, rather than the persons who are suffering. The people clothed in skin and emotion, with spirits, with relationships, uh, with a status before God, uh, with a person that we're dealing with as people uh, looking after those who are unwell. And our physiology starts with frogs. Do you have frogs? Maybe you don't have frogs. <laughs> we graduated to rats. Uh, and moved up to guinea pigs. Uh, I think I got as far as a cat. Uh, but, you know, these didn't seem terribly connected with, with people. Of course, the physiology mechanisms of mammals are all very similar, etc. But it sets the tone. Uh, and uh, that which, actually, I know my colleague Dr. Keaton knows by heart um, and doesn't use often, I don't know by heart and don't use at all, uh, but even so, is coronary disease just a question, I'm a cardiologist by trade, uh, of the mechanisms of the atheroma and the thrombosis? Is that solve the problem of the patient coming in with chest pain, having a myocardial infarct? Is that their need? I rush to the door with PTCA or I rush to the door with thrombolysis. Uh, the pain goes away. The muscle is solved, saved. Uh, is that it? Well, no, it's not it at all. I mean, it's great. And I'd like that done to me. I'll tell you the guy I'd like to do it when I get my coronary. <laughs> but that's not it, is it? This guy's self-employed. He's going to lose his occupation. He's going to lose his status. This guy is married. Can he have sex? Can he look after his children? All sorts of issues arise. And if our focus is on the mechanics only, then we're only half part serving that person's needs. And compassion, of course, takes account of all of that. Compassion says, what is this doing to this person? And indeed, their coronary attack may have occurred for a very good reason. Maybe he was fired that morning. And that arthromatous plaque that was going to go one day has gone today because of some other life circumstance. 
And it's been said for several years now, and this is a quote from a, a well-known psychiatrist in our own country, about the training that we've had for very many years, which is based on things, test results, data, measurables, that the Enlightenment so liked, numbers. Kepler talked about physics only being useful if you could measure things with numbers. And we love that. We'll do dozens of tests because there's the answer to everything. So how do we train people to deal with people? That's, that's the vital bit. Where do complaints come from in a healthcare system? Poor relationships, poor communication. Patients will forgive if they have explanations, even if something's been gone wrong. So we get that impersonality that we saw before. Well, as long ago as when Plato was speaking, this was important and has got lost, and we need to rediscover it. And our faith, our knowledge of God's love for us and for people, takes us to the same point. We can't cure the body without the mind, the mind without the soul. For we cannot be well unless all the parts are well. That's whole person medicine, isn't it? All the parts are well. And for all the parts to be well, unconnected, then we need compassion. So how does that work out for real? I brought Dr. Gita. Thank you. When, when I was working in, uh, in the Himalayas, in the Mission Hospital, many years ago, um, it was a leprosy hospital, but we did have a general ward for people locally who were ill. And one day, a father came with his son, who was really quite, quite ill, and he'd walked with him for three weeks. And he'd walked for a whole day past the government hospital in the capital to come that extra day's walk to bring his son to a leprosy hospital. And I said to him, why didn't you stop in Timpu? Because it, it, was, it was, bearing in mind the economy of the country and the stage of development, it was, it was a better equipped hospital there with, with, with good doctors. But the father said, because we've heard that here you love us. That was amazing. That wasn't me. I don't think I was terribly caring. Compassion. I was a bit more like those doctors in that ward round. I was very task orientated. I, I learned compassion. I learned it. And I learned a lot of it from my Nepali Christian staff. It's the nurses and people. But I, I hope we, we did set the tone, I, I hope. <laughs> but we hear that you love us. And that's worth an extra 24 hours walk after three weeks. So patients deem it important. Here we have the mosaic. This is the third century, again from Italy. I rather like Italy. Um, but um, this is a, a mosaic on a, a church built in the third century. And it's showing the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, totally integrally connected as one. And... Um, that is how we are, body, mind, spirit. When I, when I was thinking of it, I another talk about this. I, I look at 
can there be such a thing as a purely physical illness? And I'd, I'd actually hit my, ha- my thumb with a hammer. I had a subagual hematoma. And um, it was uh, quite ugly. And, um, and I thought, well, there's a pure physical injury. Pure. It's um, mechanical trauma, mechanical rupture, extravasation. What could be more physical? And I thought, well, why did I hit it? Because I was in a rush, in a hurry. I'm a careless person. I picked up too big a hammer because, I, you know, I'm not careful. I hit it. And it was painful. Now, if you have pain for a long time, it, it ceases to be physical. It becomes ingrained. It becomes psychological. It becomes a mental suffering. But then I thought, well, if I was examining a patient today, I would feel quite ashamed seeing my battered thumb against their body. Shame is spiritual. So even a thing like that has those dimensions. And I I challenge people to come up with a purely physical disease, apart from death. World Health Organization reports that um, until recently, the health professions have largely followed the medical model and, and focused on medicine and surgery and not given much importance to beliefs and faith. But this is no longer satisfactory. Patients and physicians have begun to realise the elements of faith, hope and compassion in the healing process. And, and here's a, a paper from, from the States at the beginning of when they, they started looking at, at these issues. There's been so many papers in the, in the last 30 years um, showing the benefits of faith, prayer, and compassion. But this, this is one of the first ones, and one of the most dramatic ones, because this is a pure test of compassion. And they took uh, 86 women with metastatic breast cancer. So it was palliative care only, it was not curative. And they gave each group exactly the same medical care. And one group just had the medical care. Standard medical care. So not not, not deliberately <laughs> cruel or anything like that. But um, they survived 18.9 months, which was quite good for the time. The other group, they, um, they gave support by getting them into groups to care for one another. I think they had facilitation. But they, they formed groups and they... They cared for each other. They understood each other. When one died, they went to the funerals together. And that group Yeah. Now if a drug company gets a drug that does that, they'd be mega bucks. Wall Street would rock it. We've got it. Compassion. The love of God, the love of Jesus, the love that we have as a free gift from God that we can pass on to the patients. Here's one of my patients from from the Himalayas. Uh, A young man suffering from a disease. Who recognises the disease? Yeah? You don't get much in the States now. Louisiana used to have some, you know, used to have a leprosarium. 
It's leprosy. The promotor's leprosy. But what other disease? Depression. Absolutely, it's there, isn't it? We all look for a physical disease, don't we? Depression. There's a young man at 18 whose life had come to an end. Depression. And here, even higher up, just at the foot of the great big white mountains, I came across this uh, father and son. Uh, the father was in his 40s, the son was seven. The, the father had a different form of leprosy. He had dimorphous leprosy. His hands were paralysed, his eyelids paralysed. Um, and in his face you see something even deeper than depression. You see hopelessness. Is that right? Hopelessness. And the sad thing is you see it in the face of the seven-year-old. The seven-year-old has not got leprosy. But the disease, the spiritual disease, has transmitted. You see, it's, we, we, spiritual compassion can infect. Despair can infect. So, so here's this, this couple. When you look at that couple, what do you feel? What do you feel? Interested? Not interested? Does it arouse a response? What, what response? Hmm? Sadness. Sadness makes you feel sad. What would you like to do? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. That's all you can do for this man. Care for him. And so a response that makes you want to care is what? Compassion. Yeah. And so you feel the same as, as Jesus. Remember with the leprosy patient, he filled with compassion, he reached out and touched him. That's the law that God has written in our hearts, to feel compassion. Nothing wrong with doctors being compassionate. And here is another picture from Robert Pope. I promise you there's some good ones as well. Here's um, a man with, I, th I think, probably two patients. I uh, don't know if they're Christian faith or Muslim faith or what they are. But this man, his cross is important. And they're with him in that. They're not there, they're with him. So, do you want to carry on? Switch over. It's, uh... We thought we'd like to share with you something which is about the way, uh, and you may possibly have come across this at the Stanford Prism experiment. Has anybody come across that? Yeah? Okay. Well, for those of you who haven't, you can have a little nap if you want to snooze. Those who have heard, that's fine. Um, in a way, just to demonstrate how systems can affect behaviour. 
um, and how, going back to the medical illustration, that uh, compassion seemed to be bred out of people as they came to the med school for a while. Uh, and this was an experiment uh, which I think is completely startling. Uh, whereas it says there, uh, just in an ordinary college, um, this uh, uh, research uh, psychologist, Philip Zimbardo, uh, designed an experiment where he took a group of uh, students and got them in together like here and said, I'm going to divide you into two, one group. Uh, I want you to become... Uh, prison guards and the other group you're going to be the prison inmates uh, and we built a prison downstairs which they had a mock prison and we're just going to ask you to look after these prisoners they were given the costume uh, they were told very few rules like you're not going to cause physical damage to these people Otherwise, you can run this prison as you want to. The inmates turned up to be taken into prison in their ordinary clothes, uh, and there were some cameras to observe what was going on. It's a residential prison, of course, and the mock prison environment was where this was set to run to see what happened. And those of you who have read about this will know what happened. As the days went by, the guards invented all sorts of rules for constraining the prisoners' activities. They took away all their clothes, gave them something simple to wear, took away all their identity, so they stopped being individual persons. That was their idea, these college students. They had not been told to do that, just from where it sprang to mind and what they knew. And this went on with increasingly humiliating tasks and shapes and positions and lifestyle being enforced on the prisoners. And this was watched by this team of research scientists. They weren't allowed to get out of it, and some of the prisoners became quite, quite disturbed. Uh, and as that's describing their... The ordinary students, selected at random from the class to be the guards, became more and more brutal and sadistic. And the people, their mates from a week before in class, as the prisoners, got broken completely. And it was interesting that Philip, Stam Philip Zimbardo himself was watching this happen. And it was carrying on getting worse. And there was somebody who came in from the outside to say, can't you see what's happening? And she was an external controller, and she said, this has got to stop, because actually real damage was occurring, which even the research person running the experiment hadn't really taken on board enough. And then afterwards, all these mates got back together again, and it took weeks of debriefing, because they had no real contention with each other, and yet placed in that environment and left to run freewheel. Something which was horrifically unlike compassion was gradually played out. Based on, I guess, what was in those acting out the guards' characters had seen, heard, imagined to be 
what guards in a prison detention centre like that would do. Uh, Philip Zimbardo was publishing this on the basis of if you put people in an environment, actually it can have powerful influences for bad. So the question is, if that's true, can you have powerful influences in a system the other way around? What would actually promote the other sort of behaviour? In fact, he, uh, the researcher, offered this hope that teaching this behaviour of compassion is possible. And, of course, my guess is that the guards had quite a powerful influence of role modelling from either fiction or fact about what they knew about guards. So how does that play into what we could do about learning compassion as opposed to learning sadism and anti-compassion? I think I must be the bad guy because it's always John who seems to have the answers. <laughs> but hey... <laughs> The great thing about love is it has to be real. Um, I, was, I was just reminded of a story of this, this church minister, pastor, who relayed his drive with concrete. <laughs> and um, uh, a few hours later, he looked out of his window, and there were the next-door neighbor's kids actually wading in the concrete. <laughs> And he shouted, get off, get off my country, you horrible children. <laughs> and the neighbour came out and said, Minister, on Sunday you tell us we've got to love everybody. And he said, well, <laughs> it's, it's easier to love people in the abstract than in the concrete. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, we have to be very careful as Christians, we don't make these general statements and they don't relate into our actions. You know, it's, it's, you have to be careful. I, I'd, I'd like, we've, we've only got a few minutes, because these are quite short sessions. W would you like to just take two minutes? Two minutes, just share with the people just next to you a thought of something that makes you, the, this side of the room, share something which in your working environment makes you feel more compassionate and this group, things in your working environment that make you feel less compassionate. Can you just do that? Two minutes. such a short time, it might be... Uh... Oh, do we, we blank the screen with a B, don't we? Yeah. Oh, it blanks that as well, doesn't it? Yes, unfortunately it does. Yes, it doesn't... Uh, mm. 
Exercise. Can we just have one or two examples from uh, which I should, you, you were the more compassionate group? Okay, just one or two examples of things which you see around you that make you as a person more compassionate. Anything? Well, I always said if we're working at a faith-based place or have a group praying as the yeah. of our day. Prayer. Pr- yeah. I mean, we really forget prayer, don't we? I mean. You know, when I was working in a mission hospital, we prayed. The, the Buddhist Hindu staff used to come. I said, well, you know, just reflect, meditate, whatever you do. But join together to say, we work under a higher authority, which wasn't me as the superintendent. But, all right, so, so, so that's right, prayer. I, I think sometimes when I had patients, I, I, I worked with a lot of criminals, drug addicts, and people like that. And some of them weren't very lovable. But it became a challenge to find that grain of goodness in them. And sometimes you had to pray, Lord, just give me, give me enough affection for this person to let that come. And it was very rare that you didn't find such a thing. And once you'd found it, it could grow. Okay, so prayer. Uh, another thing? Um, having more time. More time? If I had more time, I could be more compassionate with my patients. Yeah, I, I think time pressure. I mean, it's, you can, if you're working under great pressure, you can be quite compassionate to start with, but it sort of runs out, doesn't it? Yeah, I, it, it, it is. So, what's the answer to that? Change your job. Change your job. Yeah. <laughs> I think you could say good self care. Hmm? Good self care. Good self care. Yeah. You, if you're tired, if you're got a hangover <laughs> you know you, you know you, you know you can't be compassionate i've got a headache you know if, if going to bed as healthcare professionals we owe it to our patients to make ourselves as capable as we can be mentally and physically exercise yes i think then being willing to listen to their stories yes their, their story yeah Listen to their story. It's their story. That will give you the clues to their illness. In, in England, they did an experiment. They, they videoed uh, family doctors in their consultation. And, and they sort of timed 
the thing, looked at how many diagnostic questions they asked. And then they said to the same group of doctors, this week we're going to video you and you're not to interrupt the patient. You say, tell me what's the matter with you and you sit there. And they said, we can't do it. (laughs) We'll never get home. And when they looked at their videos, do you know how long patients talked? What do you think the longest any patient talked for? Two hours? You were out by a factor of 60. 120 hours. No. Uh, you <laughs> Two minutes. I mean, maybe... Hmm? I've done that experiment. You have? Yeah, Here I had are. a consultation room there and the clock there. So I thought, go. And actually, nobody talked for longer than 45 minutes. 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. They, 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 they said in that, the average time was 90 seconds. Actually, with a cardiologist. Yeah, you I mean, stern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you look particularly inviting. The, the more inviting you are, the shorter they'll, they'll come straight to the point. Yeah. They, they gave virtually all the information needed to make a diagnosis. And the average number of extra specific questions that had to be asked was three. Yes, they are difficult, aren't they? <laughs> you have some people like that. I think you have to say, no, no, just tell me about the most important one. Yeah. No, no, you say the most important. What is the most important thing here for you? I think that's right. I did have one patient who, who had some mental disease. She could not stop talking. And I, I, she was sitting there, and, and you know, I usually manufactured a way of getting her out. I used to walk out of the room and go and have a coffee or something. But, um, <laughs> but um, the, the one day she was talking, and my nurse and receptionist, who were quite big ladies, they sort of suddenly came marching into my consulting room, picked up the chair with this lady on it, <laughs> and walked out. <laughs> and she was still talking. <laughs> and the next patient came in and said, <laughs> so, I, I came past that lady in the corridor and she said oh he's such a lovely doctor <laughs> I thought I was going to be hauled off to the general medical council <laughs> but um, no no it, you know, there are some patients like that but on the whole you know compassionate care doesn't actually need to take a huge length of time pressure destroys compassion I think that was message. Okay, this side, one or two things of less compassionate. I think the pressure is, you know, when you come into the consulting exam and you've got a dry erase board and you've got to put your time down when you go in, your time oh, yeah. is out when you're done. That's the pressure to yeah. see more, see more, see more. That is happening in some Oh, yeah, it's happened in the UK very much. It's, it's a bad pressure. It should be resisted. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, that, gratitude is a very positive thing. A patient who says, thank you so much, that makes me feel so much better. You feel better, you're more compassionate than the next person. person I've, I've made a point now of thanking people for simple tasks. The man cleaning the, the restroom at the, uh, at the airport. Uh, I think he was probably from Somalia or somewhere. This was in England. And he was really polishing the brass 
things. And, and I, I said to him, thank you for taking so much effort to make this place nice. And he beamed. <laughs> now, if we could do that with people, let's make it that we are grateful to others. Do you see this? And I think really, we, we've got to draw to an end really, but one, one of the biggest factors is those you work with. If you're working with compassionate people, you will become more compassionate. If you're working with brutal people, as we saw in the Zimbabwe experiment, you become more, less compassionate. So our role, wherever we're working, is to be that compassionate person who will allow the person next to us to become compassionate. I think this phrase was said yesterday somewhere, if the church ceases to shape the world, the world will shape the church. And you can put that in the individual life. If I don't shape those around me, they will shape me. Does that make sense? Richard, final wisdom. No, thank you for staying to listen. Um, we've explored a little bit. I think one thing I'd love to share with you, and this I think we sense we've got to be compassionate. I've, we've been talking about that. I think a really lovely thing that I find helpful is that my job is to pass on Jesus' compassion to them, to each other, because he gives it. And one of the things which seems to enable us to give away is the fantastic amount of compassion we've received. And praise is a great way of identifying with how great our God is and how much he has given. We can get pretty dry pretty quickly giving out. And I think medicine is a really demanding job because if we take any account of that person on the other side of the consultation, then it's draining us. And I think actually unless that happens, we're not really entering their world to be able to be compassionate. But that actually takes a lot of stuffing out of who we are. And I find at the end of a clinic, I'm really, really washed out uh, because it's going on. On the other hand, what a lovely idea it is that we're taking Jesus' compassion and passing it on. We don't have to be the source of that compassion. Actually, the source of that compassion is our Lord, who has infinite compassion for us. And that's our real resource, and that enables us to ride through our careers and our uh, calling, I think. So thank you for joining and, and staying. Um, there are those various things at the back, if you still want to pick up yeah. some of the prime disc of a few more lectures... Uh, recorded on video. Very old technology, I'm afraid. Doesn't require any airwaves at all. Um, an article about keeping a compassionate nature from one of our colleagues and various things about us as an organisation. We hope you have a great rest of time.